Well, <clears throat> there is a mouse in the corner of my cell. It looks well fed, which worries me because the bread they gave me for dinner looked a little bit nibbled. John, young John, is sitting in the corner praying and, and every so often looks up with, at me with a shy grin, sort of Damien McKenzie look. He's not much more than a kid, but he inspires me. His faith is jaw-droppingly deep and he doesn't seem scared. Early today was pretty amazing. The two of us were off to the temple together to pray and just be among the faithful. I love the temple courts. They say the temple is where heaven meets earth and God himself lives. I don't know about that, but I do always feel a peace there, a sense of the divine presence that I don't get in other places. One thing I learned from Jesus is that the life we live, we live together. So whenever I go out now for a, to get a kebab or a curry, I grab one of the young guys to go with me because you never know what might happen. Jesus showed us that life is a series of teaching moments and so much happens in the ordinary. Anyway, we got to the temple, John and I, and we saw old disabled Jacob sitting by the beautiful gate. Everyone knows Jacob because he's always there and he'll always greet you with a shalom. You don't get past an experience bigger in our world very easily. I didn't have a red shekel on me to give to him, and nor did John. But I did have the sense that I did have something for him. So I stopped, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he was probably thinking, pay dirt, this is going to be a good morning. But instead, from somewhere inside me, the words came out, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then it was a very surreal moment. I reached down, I helped him up, and he was bounding around like a young gazelle, like this guy. He did a couple of cartwheels along the cloister. He was loudly praising God. He was just delirious, and, and who could blame him? He'd been disabled all his life. And this crowd just surged around me, and, and I just knew what I had to do. I opened my mouth, and I preached my little heart out. And blow me down, the crowd were hanging on my every word. I, I told them about Jesus and how what he did and that he was the Messiah and the one that we've been waiting for so long. I talked about Moses and the prophets, and I, according to John, when we debrief later, I made tolerable sense. That was good. John's a smart boy. I listened to him. So I'm still busting out my sermon when the crowd parts and there's this group of older men 
dressed up in priestly clothes comes through. Oh no. Everyone went quiet, unsure what was going to go down. And one of these guys told me that he was the captain of the temple guard. He was quite softly spoken, but he looked to me to be quite a serious human. He wasn't used to people disobeying him. He told John and me that we were under arrest for disturbing the peace and that we were to come with him. As we trotted after him through this now silent crowd, we could hear in the background Jacob still having his one-man praise and worship session in the background. We've been sitting in our cell ever since. I didn't sleep much. There was quite a lot going on in the building, people scurrying to and fro, looking all important. The odd Sadducee, that's the ones with the really big outfits, would come down and have a peek at us, then walk away unimpressed. They probably weren't too impressed that we were preaching the resurrection, let alone the re resurrection of Jesus. Well, breakfast came and went, such as it was, and then John and I were marched off into a little room, and it was just a little chamber off the main room where the Sanhedrin, that the National Council, meets. There was a debate going on through the war. We could hear um, big voices arguing, but we couldn't hear the detail of what they were saying. I guess they were trying to decide what to do with us. Well, after a bit, we were dragged out in front of the council and changed, and I can tell you, it's a pretty intimidating place. In front of us was all the great and the good of the country. All the Jewish power players were there. Most of them were glaring at me, but I got a little smile from Joseph of Arimathea, he who lent Jesus his tomb for a couple of days. He's a good egg. Well, all my insecurities bubbled up to the surface. I'm just a peasant fisherman from Galilee. What the heck do I know? What can I do? And I realized as I stood there that these, these were the same people who a matter of days before had sent Jesus to the cross. Who sent him to Pilate. They won't think twice doing that to me if it suits them. I'm nothing to them. And they are God's anointed leaders of the country. Now, it was one thing to preach to the crowd at Pentecost and then at the beautiful gate, but it's quite another to preach at, to the Sanhedrin. And a little while ago, I was so afraid of appearing before these men that I betrayed Jesus, the most important person in my life. But hey, I'm not alone. John stands next to me quite serenely. I can feel his support. I glance to my left and there is Jacob, the former disabled Jacob, standing strong, still with a goofy grin on his face. I doubt he slept. He winks at me. I know that he is profoundly healed. And so does everyone else in the room. And the room goes quiet. And the priest in the middle of the front row booms at me. By what power 
or by what name did you do this? Oh, that's an easy one. As I open my mouth to speak, I have a sense of clarity about what I think and feel, and it's like I'm back preaching at the beautiful gate before I was so rudely interrupted by being arrested. And I said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but it has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we might be saved. Well, that sounded quite good, didn't it? Did I say that? Hmm. It was like all my fears and insecurities sort of had a warm blanket thrown over them so that they disappeared. I'm beginning to quite enjoy this prophesying in the spirit thing now that I've done it three times. And the peacocks and all their finery were quite amazed. And they said nothing for quite some time. And eventually the boss cocky peacock ordered us and Jacob taken back to the holding room that we came from. We were there for quite a while, presumably as they tried to work out what they were going to do with us. And eventually we walked back in, the only noise being our chains clinking as we shuffled along. The priest that I now realise was Annas the high priest, and he ordered us never to mention Jesus' name in public again. And I replied, well, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, well, you must judge. And little John piped up, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. I was so proud of him. The Spirit's inspiration, he'd found his voice. And they threatened us with punishment if we kept preaching, but I, I could tell that they knew we were going to take no notice. There was no wind in their sails, no real strength or conviction. Now it was Joseph of Arimathea winking at me amongst all the threats. I was trying not to giggle. We were okay for now. Because the Spirit had healed Jacob, who everyone knew because he begged every day at that spot for years, actually for several decades. The miracle was undeniable. When we got back home, there was this massive crowd of friends that had anxiously waited for us to be released. What's more, there were hundreds of new people there. Apparently many people had believed because they had seen or heard about Jacob's healing. It was the talk of the town. We sang together and worshipped, and then one of the brothers stood up and he prayed this amazing prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand 
and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in the city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We stood before the Lord that day as one, united in worshipping the Father through Jesus, his Son, by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. The place shook like an earthquake rolling through, but it was the Spirit filling us for service and inspiring us to preach the good news boldly. We knew that day that God was with us. Quite a story, isn't it? A couple of things from it that I want to reflect more deeply on. You'll be very surprised to hear there's three. Firstly, they leant into each other. It was no accident that Jesus sent the 70 out in Luke 10 on their first sort of training ministry exercise in pairs. He wanted them to learn to trust each other because he knew it was going to get difficult. Peter and John leaned into each other under pressure. And when the pair returned home in triumph, the whole community celebrated and worshipped together. And I think, you know, we need to do that more here at Opawa. I think it's why we love baptismal services so much, because it's a celebration of somebody's life and their faith. Good things happen here at Opawa. Consider recently, we got a $30,000 grant to employ Doug as our evangelist. The Opawahu Trust's connection with the Waltham School has just grown topsy in the last six months. There are four young men starting their theological training in North India soon, thanks to our support. We have a new cell group that started here a while back, and it's flourishing. Three new preachers have joined us in the last while, and Ken and Ben is checking us out as a possible alternative church. Lots of good stuff is happening. Now, I'm preaching to myself as much as to any of you. Really am. But I think we need to make a bigger play of our good days when things go well. We need to mark those occasions. First thing. Second, I think the prayer they prayed is interesting for what they prayed and what they didn't pray. They prayed for boldness and for signs and wonders. In other words, they prayed for more days like the one they just had. Interestingly, they did not pray for the pressure from the religious establishment 
to dissipate. They didn't pray for the threats to go away. They were good with that. You know, I've heard that a national church in the world at the moment that is doing particularly well is the Iranian church. Now, there may be one or two places that are harder to be a Christian than that, but there's not many. Evangelism is illegal, and if you're caught doing it, you may get executed. And conversion to Christianity will cost you a massive amount. You'll probably lose contact with your wider family. I wonder what they pray for. I wonder what the Chinese church prays for, the North Koreans. Many times I've heard us uh, in church in New Zealand give thanks for the freedom to gather and the freedom to worship. But I wonder how much good that freedom has done us, actually. The New Zealand church has been in decline since the 1960s and the Baptist movement since 2006. Baptists, sadly, are both aging and shrinking. There are half as many kids at Easter camp now as there was about seven or eight years ago. Second thing. And thirdly, lastly, many people have read the story and others like the story of the day of Pentecost and they've concluded what we're missing are the signs and wonders. If only they would come back, we would be okay. Now, a few decades ago, there was a lot more happening in that space during the charismatic renewal of the 70s and early 80s. And some of those folk have told me that the Spirit is not here in our gathering because there are not healings going on and not that sort of stuff. And that's why they're going to XYZ Church down the road. I've heard that we are a dead church. I was chatting to a pastoral colleague who's working hard in this area and he told me that his church is starting to see the 1970s return. Oh, the fashion victims will be in that church. In my view, this is to spectacularly miss the point of stories like this one. Any student of church history will tell you that miraculous signs and that sort of stuff tend to crop up in particular times and particular places. They are not constants. The constant here, the universal take-home from this passage, is that God, by His Spirit, does what needs to be done in that time, in that space, to advance His mission of saving a people to Himself. Peter and John were equipped with what they needed to face the particular situation that they were in. So the gift of healing. I thought initially the gift of evangelism, but I don't think it was actually. I think it was the gift of prophecy in the sense that Peter and John told the Sanhedrin the words that God wanted them, to, them particularly to hear. And then he got the, they both got the boldness to act. Now, the boldness is not listed as a spiritual gift, but I think it's significant in significant, Acts 4.8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. I don't think the list of spiritual gifts that we see in Romans and Corinthians are necessarily exhaustive. For example, I imagine that Charles Wesley had something like the spiritual gift of writing worship songs 
as does Stuart Townend today. God equips us for what he's called to do, us to do. That was what he did in Acts 4 and continues to do. Sometimes that will be to do the miraculous things as in New Zealand in the 1970s, in Wales in the 1900s, and in the Ratna church between the wars. In my own life, as I look back, I learned how to share my faith and lead small discipleship groups at university with student life. Later, I learned how to speak at youth groups as a youth pastor. I learned to pastor with a little p by spending four months in an old people's home listening to the stories of the people there and to preach to adult congregations during my carry placements. I was equipped for what God was calling me to. The Spirit supplied the gift and taught me how to use it directly, but also through other mentors and other teachers. Paul puts it this way in Hebrews 13. This is his prayer. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God has and will continue to equip you for, the good, for what he has called you to, the good deeds that he has planned you to do. Have a look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. We often talk about 8 and 9, but 10 is interesting. God has prepared the way for us for the good deeds he wants from us. Mick Duncan said it very well in the sermon that we played here in January and that is up on our Facebook Peeps page. Your spiritual gifts are those things that, and there's five things. You see the spiritual significance of the thing that you're doing and you see the difference that it makes. It's one. You enjoy both the exercise of the gift and the preparation for it. That's two. You see your own creativity starting to get into the gift in the way that is exercised. You get unsought praise for it. And when you exercise it, you feel God's smile. I particularly like that one. Your giftedness and your call are two sides of the same coin. If you discern one, the other will flow quite naturally. The nature of my service, the nature of your service, is not random. They were planned by God for us. If you need help figuring that one out and how that works in your life, talk to a mentor or wise head about it. If you don't have one of those, have a chat to me. Amen. Thank you. If the worship team could come up, we're going to finish with the final song.